Girlfriends, episode number 84, Raising Catholic Kids. Hello and welcome to Girlfriends. I'm Danielle Bean. I'm a wife and a mom, and I'm on a mission to help you know your worth as a woman so you can find peace, balance, and joy in family living. This week, we're talking about times of transition and the importance of giving yourself emotional space, discerning family size, and some ideas about how to raise Catholic kids. That's a lot of stuff, so we better get started. Here we go. Hey, girlfriends, how are you? Happy new week. Happy Monday. I guess you're hearing this on Tuesday at the earliest since I usually record on Monday and publish on Tuesday. But happy new week. I'm glad you're here. It's been a busy day for me. I, as you know, I usually record first thing in the morning on Mondays. And that's smart because I realized today, if I don't record first thing in the morning on Monday morning, I try to record all day long and don't get to it, which is what happened to me today. It's now um, almost dinner time, and I just forced everybody to stop asking me for stuff, and now I'm locked in my car in the driveway so I can record. I even tried originally recording in the Tiki Hut. I don't know. Those of you who were listening last summer know I recorded some episodes sitting out in the Tiki Hut that Dan built for me for my 40th birthday. Um, I, I can link to those episodes uh, in the show notes for those of you who might be interested in the Tiki Hut episodes. But uh, I wasn't able to do that because the dogs were insane. They're just like barking and fighting like all around me for some reason. They want to be near me. Anyway, now I'm locked in the car and I'm hoping nobody's going to bother me, but it's been a heck of a Monday. It's been crazy. I feel like there's so much to do right before school gets started again. Um, whether you're sending your kids to school or homeschooling or some combination of that, or if you're done with the schooling years, this is just a busy time of year, a busy kind of transition time I've discovered. And I kind of hate it. <laughs> I mean, I am coming to associate this time of year with sadness and goodbyes and endings. You know, end of summer always feels a little bittersweet anyway, because, you know, we love summer, you know, but it feels especially so since I've been sending kids to school. Um, my son Amon goes to college about an hour and 15 minutes south of us. And then my son Ambrose goes to Ave Maria, which is 1500 miles away. And um, they're both actually leaving this Thursday. And, you know, I'm doing the stuff to help them prepare doing, you know, their shopping trips and making sure that their travel plans are prepared. But I've realized as I'm going through this week, I have weighing heavily on my mind the fact that Ambrose is going to be making this road trip. He takes his car to school, which is 1500 miles, which is 24 hours of driving, which he's not going to do all at once. Um, but he's, and he's got a friend that's going to be going with him so they can keep each other company for safety and all that. But I still worry about that. And I'm still anticipating him leaving after we've had him home all summer. And that hurts. It's hard. It's really hard because we love having him here so much. He's such a joy to have around. And my son, Eamon, is leaving that same day, not for school. Well, we're going to stop at his school so he can drop off his car loaded with all of his stuff for the year. But then we're going to continue driving. I'm taking him to the airport that same day that Ambrose is leaving early in the morning. I'm taking Eamon to the airport so that he can leave for his trip to Israel. Um, this trip to the Holy Land, this pilgrimage to the Holy Land that my 21-year-old son got in his mind he was going to make, which, you know, I'm very supportive of that. I want him to explore, um, you know, spiritual travel and all that, but I'd love for him to be doing it as part of a group, you know, so it's a little bit contained and safe. Um, but no, he's just, um, he got the idea from my brother, who's many years older than he is and has much more travel experience than he does, uh, that he could just book his own trip to the Holy Land and go see the sites and do it all on his own. My brother did that with great success and had a wonderful trip. And Eamon just decided he wanted this in his life. And he worked hard to earn the money to be able to, to do it. He's been working, gosh, like 60 hours a week all summer long as a contractor. But um, that's hard to let your son do that. And not that he needs my permission to be doing any of this. Um, I realized pretty quickly when he was floating the idea many months ago, he doesn't need our permission. He's doing this. And so our job is to be supportive and try to be helpful and try to make sure his plans are as safe as possible. He's going to be meeting up with a few different priests we know who are there. Um, on the whole, I'm trying to be positive about this trip, but it too 
is really weighing on me. And in ways that I haven't like thoroughly explored, I know these two things are weighing on me. In the past week, I've been feeling like, I don't even know how to describe it. Emotionally fragile, perhaps would be the way to describe it. Like, I feel like I could cry at the drop of a hat. And I'm not usually like that. I mean, we talked about hormones and all that. This is separate from that. I just feel kind of vulnerable. And I'm I'm feeling stressed in ways that I can't really fully verbalize or express, like why I'm feeling stressed, why I'm feeling anxious in this particular moment. So I know it's those two departures that are weighing on me right now. And beyond just the, you know, worrying about my son as he's driving to Florida, worrying about my son as he's traveling abroad on his own. <laughs> oh God, God, please. If you, if you have uh, a spare prayer, please pray for my son Eamon's safety as he travels on this pilgrimage that he's designed. Um, and, you know, he did the same thing to us in a smaller scale last summer when he announced he was going on a camping trip, a solo camping trip in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Well, you know, Dan and the boys have done a fair amount of camping and they're they're pretty handy in the woods and they know how to start fires and they know how to set up camp and they know safety around wildlife and whatnot. But just going in by yourself isn't a great plan into the wilderness, you know? It's just not. And he did that last summer and survived uh, five days on his own in the woods Um uh, and I guess he'll do the same here. I'm, I'm trusting, I'm putting my trust in Jesus to protect him on this trip. But anyway, beyond all of my concerns about their safety as they travel, what's weighing on me the most is just the impending departure, depend, the impending goodbye that I know is just kind of hanging there. And so recognizing that I'm trying to, and I, I wanted to mention this because I think it's an important kind of self-awareness thing that we can do for ourselves to give myself a little bit of emotional space, cut myself a little bit of emotional slack. You know, when you're dealing with something emotionally and it's stressing you, it may not be actually physically costing your attention, your energy, but it does. It takes your energy, your emotional energy, your mental energy. It takes that. And so I'm finding things that I normally am able to do, like keep up with the laundry, <laughs> feels like an impossibility to me right now. Or things that I'm normally able to do, like eat a reasonable diet. Not really feeling like I'm great at that right now. So it's like, oh yeah, um, I'm dealing with this emotional thing right now and I feel like it's all I can focus on. So yeah, I will totally eat a giant plate of nachos and call that dinner and wash it down with two glasses of wine terrible choices. And it's probably not adding up to my emotional health anyway, in the long term. But I'm trying to cut myself some slack and not beat myself up for the things that I'm kind of falling short in right now, because I'm recognizing where it's coming from. This isn't like the new me that's gonna, you know, have the laundry all over the house and not really have a plan for dinner and uh, all that. I, that's not really the new me. I'm not embracing that. That's not me. But at the same time, I'm kind of recognizing that it's okay to let something slide right now, that it's okay to cut some corners. It's okay to not meet all of my goals to perfection right now, because I'm kind of dealing with this and I, it's not getting any easier. I thought maybe the more you do this, the easier it will get, but maybe I haven't yet experienced it enough to feel like it can get easier. I kind of feel like it compounds every year, you know, first child that went to college stayed home. So that was great. <laughs> that was like my easiest transition ever. And then when my son Eamon went away, you know, we saw him quite a bit that first year. It was only an hour and 15 minutes from us and he had a car and he was able to come home quite a bit. So that was kind of an easy transition. And then when Ambrose went away last summer, you know, I did that whole podcast about the art of, of letting go. And I linked to that last week because I was already talking about this last week. Anyway, I feel like repeating it now in this kind of dramatic way with Eamon also traveling before he leaves and kind of the end of summer feelings, it's all kind of compounding. So I'm trying to give myself a little space, you know, and I've been reflecting a little bit about parenthood and the things that I used to think were hard were hard. Like when I was going through, you know, toddler years, when I had my very first newborn and she was a colicky infant, that was truly hard. And it was took 100% of me. And so did it when I had, you know, multiple toddlers, and I was trying to manage that. And, and so did it when I had baby number five, and I thought I had everything under control, but he was just a mess of a baby that screamed all the time. And I never knew what he wanted. And he was angry. And oh my gosh, it was just so hard to deal with that. And, you know, I just I've been reflecting on that and how now my life as a parent 
is hard in different ways. Like nothing really prepares you for doing any of these different stages of parenthood except just doing them. You have to just do them. You have to experience them. We can learn a little bit from people who go ahead of us and maybe can offer their wisdom, but more so we just need to experience it. Nothing teaches you about parenting more than just doing it, just experiencing it. Nothing, honestly, nothing can prepare you when you're a parent, you're giving a hundred percent to this, to the ultimate reality that one day, you know, your kids are going to rip out half your heart and drive 1500 miles South with it, or rip out the other half of your heart and get on a plane for Israel with it. (laughs) And you're left kind of thinking, okay, now what, what am I supposed to do? You know, um, very tough for me right now. And it's, and I know that many of you are probably going through transitions too at this time of year. It's that, it's, you know, that kind of transition is pretty common with going to school. And I'm seeing all the articles online popping up again about saying goodbye to your child at college. And some of you have someone who's, you know, just starting high school and that's a transition and it feels weird and it feels brand new and it's stressful. Anyway, I just want to encourage you to give yourself a little slack. You don't have to eat an entire plate of nachos and two glasses of wine and call it dinner. But if you're doing some equivalent of that in your life right now, don't beat yourself up. It's okay. (laughs) It's not going to be forever like that. You will find your equilibrium again. And I am looking forward to having mine and sharing it with you here on the podcast. So continuing on with this week's topic. This week, we're talking about raising Catholic kids. And I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, saying that I might take this topic on when I was talking about the fact that my parents raised nine of us, and all nine of us are now adults practicing their Catholic faith. And I think that is an astonishing accomplishment in today's world. Honestly, it's pretty rare. You don't really hear about that happening. And I think my parents are pretty awesome. But I don't have the audacity to say that I know how to raise Catholic kids because I was raised in an awesome family where my parents succeeded at doing that. Um, I think a lot of it's grace. And you have to account for the fact that God gives your kids free will. So you could be the perfect parents, you could be saintly parents, and still your child could choose the wrong path. And that's not actually a reflection on you. So I think it's important when we're talking about this topic that I don't, like, I purposely didn't call this episode, how to raise Catholic kids, how to be a Catholic family. You know, I think that's so obnoxious. And I know certain authors kind of go down that path and embrace that whole idea. Um, uh, not me. You're not going to hear that here because I, I think that's just completely false. There's just, it's, it's pretension there. It's absolutely not true. You cannot tell somebody how to do that. So that's actually the first point that I want to make that there is no magic formula. When people want to talk about how do you raise Catholic kids? What does that mean? What does that look like? I understand the temptation to simplify it because we all want that. We all want that magic formula. Do X, Y, and Z and your kids will turn out faithful Catholics, right? I would totally do X, Y, and Z if I knew that were the case. But um, I think that is a temptation because we want that kind of simplicity and we want to pretend we have that level of control when Actually, we don't have that level of control, and it's actually not us who does any of it. All of this is the workings of the Holy Spirit. So the things I'm going to talk about today are some of the ways that families and parents can cooperate with grace, cooperate with the Holy Spirit to encourage good outcomes for their kids, encourage their children's faith lives, and then the real development of real faith in their children's lives. So, um, we're going to stay away from that temptation, although I know it all too well. In fact, I think I experienced it most acutely when I was a young mom and insecure about so many things. That was what made me want that security and that false sense of control more than anything was that idea that, oh, that was so attractive. Okay, I'm going to do all the things right and it's guaranteed good outcome, right? We want that. We need that. We crave that, especially when we're young and we're first getting started out. But, you know, it's it truly is arrogance to think that anything, you know, works that way, that we can possibly guarantee a good outcome in our parenting by doing all the right things, checking off all the right boxes, whether it's wearing your baby or homeschooling or living out the liturgical year or attending daily mass or saying the rosary every night. or Those are all great things. Those are all good things. And that might be part of how God's calling your family to grow in holiness. But none of those are a magic formula that's going to guarantee Catholic kids. So that's not what I'm doing here. What I'm doing here is I'm going to share a little bit about my own upbringing, mostly based on my own upbringing, but also the ways in which I've tried to adapt that in our family. I'm going to share three different points here um, about 
how I think um, we can we can best raise Catholic kids. We can increase the likelihood of making faith real inside of our children's hearts and minds. Um, and okay, so the first one I want to talk about is Catholic families practice love and service to others. Now, this sounds, you know, like, yes, that's what we all should be doing inside of our families. But um, I think that inside of my family growing up, this wasn't something that was like preached about, you know, that we, we love and we serve others. It was something that was just an organic part of our family identity. And not that we were like going to the soup kitchen and helping out there every night, but it was like an expected part of what we were doing. And my parents were great examples of this generous service to the other inside of our home, first and foremost. So my mom, you know, serving the family, for the most part, she was um, an at-home mom through the years of my growing up. And she just exemplified that service, that gift of herself in service to others, whether it was, you know, cooking family dinner or doing the laundry or teaching all of her kids to read before we went to school. That was something that was important to her. And it was part of how she showed her love for us was that kind of service. And, And my dad did it in other ways that he would interact with us as kids, the ways he would contribute to the household, for sure, through his his work and his providing for the family. But in my family growing up, and this is something I've tried to actively kind of instill in my kids now, the idea that you're responsible for one another. Um, And Dan, my husband, is great at this, that he is great at teaching the kids, like, um, I've heard him, I don't know how many times say, he's your brother, that's your sister, you know, really recognizing the importance of that identity in their siblings first and foremost, but in a way that teaches them to go outside of the bounds of our family and of our home here in, you know, this little house here where it's, it's an identity of um, knowing that you are, you're called to something great And just in the most general sense, every one of us is called to greatness. We're called to holiness. We're called to union with God and that we practice that we find our way to that in different ways, but always through service to others. And first of all, with the ones that God places in our lives. So that means your family. That means serving your family. And that's something as simple as, you know, contributing to the household in in whatever way you best can do that. Um, Just having it be a normal part of what's expected. We've talked about chores here before, and I've talked about that aspect of how important it is to raise children with an identity of who they are as family. And I think that maybe this was especially a strong sense in the family that I was raised in because we were a large family in a community where that was a rarity. I feel like we kind of stood out already, like we identified with one another in a way that kind of bonded us, like we are Augroses, you know, um, that was an important part of our identity inside of the community and the school and the church and whatnot. And that we had a devotion to one another that I really feel was um, encouraged by my parents through, first of all, their example. So, you know, concretely, that would look like, um, you know, my, my parents maybe verbalizing their, their acts of service to one another, thanking each other for acts of service, verbalizing the fact that we are members of a family and pointing out the ways in which um, they expect us to do various chores around the house because we are members of a family and we support one another. And I think that that naturally leads to an identity, which every one of us is, is called to have, of making a gift of ourselves through whatever our vocation is meant to be. It's it's meant to be a gift of yourself to others that most commonly is through uh, the vocation of marriage. Of course, it's also through religious orders. And um, for those who aren't married or aren't called to religious life, we are all called and we find meaning in our relationships through making a gift of ourselves to others, through relationship with other people, giving of ourselves to other people. That's what gives meaning to our lives. That's what brings meaning to our relationships. So an understanding of that, which is countercultural, by the way, our culture is not talking about vocation as a good thing. In our culture, vocation means like what you do nine to five, right? And then you, you clock in and you clock out. And there's no real concept of this making a gift of yourself. There's no real value placed on the kinds of caregiving that we do for one another, the kinds of uh, generosity and compassion that we share with one another inside of our families, but then in the community at large, because I find that it naturally extends from there. You know, St. John Paul II called the family a school of love. And I just love that phrase. And I love that idea, that concept of making our families a school of love, a place where love is present 
practiced, where you learn it, where you act upon it, and you bring it to the outside world after learning it there. So I think that that is a, a really large part of instilling a Catholic identity in your kids is giving them that notion that you're meant to be a gift to others. It doesn't have to be something that's labeled Catholic. I mean, I always have issues with things that need to be labeled like that with regard to our faith or with regard to our church. Our church is huge and it's a beautiful, awesome, truth-filled, life-giving force. And we have access to all this truth and the teachings and the tradition of our church. And it's bigger than the world. You know, this tiny little corner of the world that we live in that we think is everything, you know, our American culture, it's the church is so much bigger than that and so much more timeless than that outside of that. And it brings a truth and a beauty to our identity within that. So really, I think that um, the idea that things have to be labeled Catholic, I think it just can be labeled life. Here is life experience. Here is truth in your life. And this is this is part of your Catholic identity because it's part of your humanity. That's just the human experience. And our church is designed specifically for that. So that's a beautiful gift. So that's the first one. Catholic families practice love and service to others. First inside of the home. And then I think it naturally extends to outside of the home and becomes part of your identity. All right. The second point I want to make is that Catholic families are unafraid to seek the truth. Now, this is getting back at what I was just mentioning about the, the church has the truth. We don't have to be afraid of any questions because the answers to all of them, some of them are, you know, things that we can't understand, like the mystery of the Trinity, for example, if you're asking questions about that. But the church isn't afraid of us asking questions. The church isn't afraid of doubts. The church isn't afraid of human weakness and human experience and human limitations. You know, the church is built for that. Jesus gave us the church precisely because we need it, because we're human, because we're weak, because we're vulnerable, because we have insecurities, because we have doubts, because we have fears, because we question things. And it really is built for exactly that. That That's why Jesus gave us the great gift of the church. And in my home growing up, this played out um, in an especially really nice way, especially with the example my dad gave us. My dad is a philosophy professor. He's still teaching. Um, let's see. My mom was pregnant with me when he first got this job at, at St. Anselm College teaching in the philosophy department. And I just turned 45. So that gives you an idea of how long my dad's been teaching philosophy. But um he was such a great example of like a love of learning in our home, such an inspiring, sometimes hilarious, sometimes embarrassing example of like seeking the truth. You know, um, I might have mentioned this before on the podcast, but when he was a Boy Scout as a young boy, he wasn't raised in the church. And as part of getting, you know, one of his merit badges or something, he needed to have a faith. There was something he needed to research or claim a faith or research a faith or something like that. And in the process of doing that, he started reading St. Thomas Aquinas and kind of read himself into the Catholic Church and took his parents along with him. And so that started out very young for him, this idea of seeking the truth and the truth can be found and this passion for knowing things and learning things. I mean, and not just about our faith, not just within the church and not just reading, you know, the doctors of the church, but in very practical things too. I mean, there was, um, we, we kind of as kids affectionately called them my dad's phases. He would go through phases where he would intensely study a particular subject matter. And he did this with, um, botany at one point. He was way into identifying trees and plants and all the different, you know, things that grew around us and all around the world and whatnot, he would often embarrass us as kids because he would pull over our giant station wagon um, on the side of the road and get out and like climb a tree to get a sample of the leaves or the bark or whatever. And, you know, this was during his botany phase and he would thoroughly explore a topic like that. He also did it with like learning different languages. He did it with baking bread. He still, um, he still knows how to bake bread and can bake, I think like six loaves at a time. Um, he did it with metalwork, you know, in practical things as well as more intellectual pursuits. But but he just set this great example for us kids of a love of learning, a passion for seeking the truth, and really a, a fearlessness about searching 
and asking questions. And he encouraged that from us. He encouraged questions and he, he loved nothing more than, you know, when we got older, if we would ask questions about our faith, if we would ask questions about the church, if we would ask questions about morals, about ethics, and he would love just talking about it. And in fact, as teenagers, he, um, my parents didn't homeschool us, but they did. I would, I call it homeschool us for CCD. It was CCD back then, not religious ed, but, um, they would do their own program with, us when we were teenagers and he would have us read, you know, these, these great, um, great books of, you know, the church and St. Augustine and all these great works and books of our church. And he would love nothing more than to have us read chapters of these books and then gather around the table on Sunday afternoons and talk about them. Just talk and talk and talk and ask questions and ask more questions. And sometimes we'd go down a rabbit hole of, you know, chasing down a particular thing. And, um, you know, it, it really made an impression upon me as, um, a teenager, especially the idea that, um, the truth could be known. We can, we can look for the truth. And, you know, that's kind of a crazy idea inside of our culture today, right? Where the truth is malleable and it's your truth and it's my truth and nothing's absolute, right? Um, but he really impressed upon us in those discussions the idea that, yes, yeah, some questions are hard and there's some things that are difficult to grapple with, but that Jesus gives us the answers and we can know them. And our church is a beautiful gift in that it gives us access to those truths about life, those things we're all seeking, like, why am I here? What's the meaning of life? What is my purpose? And um, what happens after we die? And all those things that, you know, man throughout history has grappled with. Um, not that he could wrap it all up with a tidy bow or something, but just he really made that those discussions and his openness to questions and just the you know, bookcase after bookcase after bookcase filled with volumes and volumes and volumes of, you know, his, his precious books really made that impression upon me that, um, we can ask questions and we can seek answers together. And there are things that we can know. There are truths we can learn about. And, um, I think that that, I can speak for me personally. I can't speak for my siblings, but for sure that made an impression upon me with regard to my faith because it made me really seek out answers to my questions and maybe the doubts that I had, or even the doubts that my friends had. Like I could bring him questions from my friends and our friends were welcomed um, to, you know, have discussions with our, our parents and um, ask their questions about our faith as well. But more often than not, it was me kind of representing like what the culture was saying and getting kind of a Catholic response to that. And just learning that the church is bulletproof in that way really, really firmed up my faith as a young adult. And when I went to college and not all of my life was I, you know, always making the best choices, but here was the great gift. When I was making choices that probably my parents wouldn't have wanted me to make. And I mean, nothing terrible, but anyway, you know, young adults do stupid things and uh, experiment with stupid things. And anyway, Gosh, I just said experiment. Now everybody thinks I was like doing LSD in college. Nothing like that, okay? I was nothing like that. Anyway, um, and you know, to this day, I still make choices that I, I know are wrong. Like we do that, right? It's called sin. Anyway, as, as a young adult, when I was doing that and maybe, you know, hanging out with people who weren't the best or, you know, making those kinds of choices, I always knew they were the wrong choices. That's huge. You know, that's huge. If you're a parent, you know, that's huge. Like, okay, God, go ahead. Let my kid mess up, but don't let him doubt for a minute what's true and what's good. Let him know he's choosing the bad thing, right? Isn't that what we want? And I really feel like my parents succeeded in doing that by being open to us seeking the truth. And I felt like I had access to the truth. And because of other things, childish things, immaturity, selfishness, whatever, I was choosing the other. But I fully knew what I was doing. Like, I never doubted. I never felt like, oh, I'm straying from my Catholic faith because I'm making these choices or I'm doing X, Y, or Z right now. And I never I never felt like I was abandoning my faith or leaving it behind because it was something of my childhood. Honestly, my faith became, as I grew up, something of adulthood. It became something that, that 
I could have more and more access to as I grew older and as I matured. And so that was a great gift that I feel like my parents gave me was that kind of confidence in the truth and the confidence that the church had the truth and I could ask questions and nobody was afraid of my questions. That was a great, beautiful gift that they could give to any young person who's seeking, who might be doubting, who might be questioning. Um, so, you know, the ways that we can cultivate that inside of our homes, I try to practically speaking, be open with my kids' questions, be open, encourage their questions, ask them questions to kind of find out where their brains are and respect and value their input when, you know, they're telling me what they're thinking about, what they're, what they're wondering about, what they're, what they might be doubting, what they might be struggling with, that I want our home and our family to be a place of that kind of openness, that kind of fearlessness about questions about doubting. It's not a bad thing. It's a human thing to have fears and have questions and doubts and insecurities. So, um, you know, and, and day to day, I always, I like to make sure that we're being open to our kids' friends as well, or other, other friends of ours that might have questions about our faith that, um, I try to be an example of that seeking that passionate seeking of the truth that my dad is such a great example of and such a beautiful and inspiring example of. And it's a great calling. It's it's hard to do sometimes. Um, and it can be uncomfortable sometimes. But um, I know that we're called to do it as parents. And I really, I really think putting in the work and, and, you know, sometimes you're not going to know the answer. Sometimes your kid's going to ask you a question. You're going to have no idea how to respond. But guess what? Somebody knows how to respond. Somebody knows what the answer is. Inside of our church, you can find good responses. You can find people. You can find, you know, pastoral answers to some of the toughest questions that there are. It's a beautiful gift, this this tradition of our church and the 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 foundations of our church, the doctors of our church and their teachings and their writings. Make use of it. Explore it together with your kids if you're not familiar with some of the great books in the history of the Catholic Church, some of the great authors, some of the great saints' writings. You can explore them together. And um, there's no shame in, in letting your children know that you don't have all the answers, but you're going to help them to seek all the answers. So again, Catholic families are unafraid to seek the truth. Um, the third point that I want to make with regard to raising Catholic kids and increasing our chances, increasing the likelihood, by no means a magic formula, but increasing the likelihood that your your children's faith lives will continue to grow and develop as they become adults, is Catholic families put God and family first. This is huge, especially in today's world where it's easy to get distracted, right? I mean, there's school, there's work, there are social things that pull us away, there's sports. Oh my gosh, don't even get me started about the God of sports. And I say this as a mom whose children thoroughly enjoy sports, and I think it's a very good and positive thing in their lives. But our culture takes it a little too far sometimes, you know, that having four-year-olds out on the soccer field, you know, <laughs> 10 hours a week is insane and excessive. And yet it's happening. And, you know, some of these travel teams for different sports, I think, are excessive in the time and demands on the family. Anyway, all of this to say, whatever your particular family, is, you know, philosophy is with regard to sports and outside activities, and that will vary by family. It's going to vary depending on your temperament, depending on your kids' gifts and, and what they enjoy and what they want to pursue and um, what their personalities are, what their needs are. There's no one size fits all there. But don't ever let those outside things replace God and family and the priority that those things need to have inside of your home. It's tempting to do, and it's all too easy to slide into it because everybody else is doing it, right? School, number one priority, getting good grades, you know, getting into the that particular college or whatever goal it is you have for your kids. Don't let that replace the importance in their lives, the precedence in their lives of God and family. And how do you do that? What does that look like? Well, I mean, this is one place where um, I've mentioned before that I am a reluctant homeschooler and uh, I struggle a lot with the idea of homeschooling and the level of commitment that it requires for me. But this is one thing that I have especially appreciated about homeschooling. And I'm not saying this to say everybody needs to homeschool to make their family a priority, but you can practice various forms of this no matter how you educate your children. Um, just... The, the fact that homeschooling allowed us to make our own schedule and make our family a priority and make our faith a priority. So um, not everybody was getting up in the morning and going in a bunch of different directions. We were staying home. We were under one roof. 
I got to pick the schedule. I got to pick, you know, if we were going to pause before lunchtime and, and say family prayers, I got to choose, you know, what books we were going to read. And if we were going to have, you know, Bible stories before bedtime and that sort of thing. So um, I really appreciated that kind of focus that homeschooling allowed me to have. But beyond homeschooling, every family has the opportunity to set their own priorities and their own schedules and to here's the big thing, say no to some things, say no to some things. If your kid participating in the school play is getting in the way of spending Sunday together as a family, maybe they don't need to be participating. And I know this is crazy. This is crazy talk, right? Because of course they need to be doing all the things. Not true. And, you know, and I think that part of it, you know, um, me being raised in a larger than average family that kind of stood out kind of helped me to kind of evaluate, like, here's what the culture says. Our family does it different. And oh my gosh, how much did I resent that when I was a teenager and I just wanted to fit in? And I just wanted to be allowed to go to the school dances. Everybody was allowed to go to the school dances. I was not allowed to go to the school dances, blah, 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 all of that. But in the end, and don't tell my parents I said this, I appreciate that. It was a gift. It was a cross at the time. But in the, in the long run, it was a gift to recognize that you're set apart, that you don't have to do things a certain way because everybody else is. And I think sometimes without even realizing it, we're giving our kids the message that you do what everybody else does because we're doing what everybody else does. And that doesn't mean you have to go and rebel against, you know, whatever, whatever after school activity it is that everybody's doing. It might be a good thing. It might be just fine for you to do it. But if it's interfering in some way, if it's not in line with your values, and by that, I don't necessarily mean that like it's a, a vulgar play your kid's going to participate in or it's a bad movie that everybody's going to see. It, it might not align with your priorities in that you're not spending enough time together as a family, that, you know, family prayers becomes the last thing you're going to do in the evening because everybody's coming home from different places and you're exhausted and just want to have dinner and get everybody to bed. That in that way, um, our culture, I think, and sometimes our outside commitments have a way of creeping in and claiming our time, our energy, our attention that otherwise should be and would be focused on God and family. So I think giving your kids and giving yourself this countercultural idea that you don't have to do everything that everybody else is doing, that your family might be different. Your, you know, your parenting might look different from a lot of other parents. And this is something that I struggle with quite a bit because I always want to fit in. Frankly, I do not like standing out. I, I read that passage about, you know, the, the, the shining light and set it on a table and the city set on a hill. And I just want to die because I don't want to be that. I don't want people looking at me. I don't want to look different. I don't want to be set apart. And I think that's very natural and it's very human to feel that way. And, you know, we all have different comfort levels with that. Um, and I'm not saying you have to be the in-your-face Christian at every, you know, meeting or social event you go to. but be aware of some of the compromises you might be making socially, pers personally, financially, with your time or otherwise, um, that are creeping in on what otherwise would be placing priority on God and family first. And I find that one naturally leads to the other. The fact that if you're focusing on your family um, and focusing on time together as a family, if, if you're family is faith-based, if you're putting Christ at the center of your heart and at the center of your home and your family, then it naturally is going to lead to, you know, God being a priority. So making sure that you're not allowing things to creep into that family time, creep into those family priorities, creep into, you know, it, being Catholic means more than just going to church on Sunday, you know, and you hear that all the time and it just sort of becomes a cliche, but it's so true. How many of us are just kind of checking our time card? you know, and I went to mass, we got to mass and that is all we need to do. Well, maybe not. Maybe you'd be having more discussions. Maybe you would talk about the gospel or the homily on Sunday if you had family dinner on a regular basis on Sunday afternoons, you know, things like that, that we kind of compromise sometimes because of all the things we're doing, all those important things. Um, I just want to encourage you to kind of reevaluate your, your family time, because I think it honestly is true that Catholic families put God and family first in ways that are noticeable, in ways that are sometimes uncomfortable, in ways that sometimes are sacrificial and make you feel like the big fat weirdo on your block. And 
it's okay, you know? And I think of the times in my life growing up where I felt like the big fat weirdo and I resented my parents and their rules and how strict they were and all of that. And I just, I know what a gift it was and I know it's a gift to my own kids and I know it's a gift to me in an ongoing way to remind ourselves we're, we're Christians. We're not called to fit in. Sometimes we're going to feel uncomfortable because our values, guess what? Don't align with our culture's values. That's just the truth. And too bad for you. <laughs> you have to you have to suffer through being a weirdo sometimes. But I really think that's sort of an important mark of raising Catholic kids, giving them that idea that they're not always going to fit in. And that's part of who you are. It's part of your identity. It's part of our identity as a family. So those are my three different thoughts. Um, certainly not a magic formula, but I, the things that I think help us along the way toward raising Catholic kids. First, Catholic families practice love and service to others. Catholic families are unafraid to seek the truth. And finally, Catholic families put God and family first. I have probably a dozen others, but I wanted to focus on these. And maybe you have some that you're thinking of. Maybe you were raised in an awesome Catholic family, or you're struggling to do so with your own kids now, and you found out some things that work, some things that don't. Share your ideas with me. I would love to hear from you. You can connect with me. Send me an email, danielle at daniellebean.com, or go to daniellebean.com. Click the little tab that says leave voicemail. I would love to have your voice to add to a future episode of Girlfriends. Before we move on here, I just want to take a moment here to thank those of you who support the Girlfriends podcast through Patreon. Patreon is a simple system that allows you to pledge as little as a dollar per episode. And it's an easy way and a very tangible way for you to show your appreciation and give your support to Girlfriends. And it really does encourage me to continue to produce the show week after week. Your support is more meaningful than you know. So thank you so much for doing it and for considering becoming a Patreon supporter of Girlfriends at Patreon. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash girlfriends. I also want to thank Ascension Press for partnering with me to bring you this podcast. They help me out with the production of this podcast and help me to promote it in various ways. And you can check out all of their podcasts at their podcast channel and all the other Catholic media that they offer that will entertain and inspire you and educate you about your Catholic faith. You can see all of that and more at ascensionpresents.com. Okay, now I want to share just a little bit of feedback that I've received in the past week. The first is from Kim, who says, Hi, Danielle. So I was literally thinking about you in balance the other day when trying to balance the needs of three of my four kids. My two littlest were sick and so needy, but I knew my nine-year-old daughter needed to talk about her day, and I just never got to her, and I wondered how you manage it with eight. Just before I listened to your podcast, I was grieving the fact that I can't balance the housework and the needs of my kids and my husband, and I don't even work outside the home and feeling really bad about myself about that too. My desire to be a stay-at-home mom made me believe I'm not a feminist. I agreed with Claire's definition of feminist though, and I tried to teach this to my daughter and sons. The other reflection was on my biggest obstacle to finding time for me. My belief has been that a good Catholic, that's in quotation marks, lives to serve as Jesus did. So if I took time for me, I was not being a good Catholic. However, as I get older, I find that if I don't, I end up sick or injured or in bed for two days, not serving anyway. So I agree with you that it doesn't have to be a spa day. In fact, my favorite me time is actually volunteering to help remedial readers at my son's school. Thank you for the joy and comfort you bring in sharing your own thoughts and those of your wonderful guests. And God bless you in all that you do. Best wishes, Kim. Thank you, Kim. I'm going to go out on a limb and say maybe Kim is not American because she said stay-at-home mum in her email. I love that. Anyway, thank you for listening and thank you for that feedback. And I'm glad I could encourage you a little bit about balance because you are right that um, it's hard to balance multiple kids. And I don't care how many you have. I don't care if you only have one and it's a perfectly behaved child. It's hard to balance the needs of other people and your multiple responsibilities. Um, so yeah, that little talk I gave about balance because I needed to have the pep talk myself. <laughs> I hope it was helpful to you. And also about the finding time for you. And I love that you shared that your finding me time is actually through volunteer work. That is great. And I, I think that's very real that like 
and it's great that you recognize that, that that's helpful to you. It's probably getting you out of the house a little bit. You're interacting with other people who aren't your immediate family. And that's probably enjoyable and inspiring in different ways. And um, you're able to help others, which is very encouraging and see the results of your work, which also is encouraging. So I think that's wonderful. So what I want to encourage other people to learn from Kim's example that it may not be a spa day. You know, like we were talking about, think about what actually truly refreshes you, what makes you feel good, what restores you, what brings up your energy levels, what helps you to feel refreshed and good and invigorated when you go back to your everyday work again. So great example. Thank you so much, Kim, for sharing that with us. Okay, uh, next up, I heard from Debbie who said, hi, Danielle, I stumbled upon your article about discerning family size. I don't know which one that was, but glad you found it. Hope it was helpful. I need some help. My husband and I have been married for 13 years. Our girls are 12, 9, and 6. After our youngest came, we felt satisfied and done. I had been teaching part-time for many years, and my husband was a youth minister. We struggled with finances for more years than not. We also had no maternity coverage for a few years. We got in the mindset that we were done having kids. We have basked in the glory of no more nap times to rush home for, no more diapers to change, no more sleepless nights, no more barfs on the top bunk bed in the middle of the night. Oh, I know those situations. We had arrived. We were out of the tunnel. Then the tug started. It was almost a joke at first. We have one more seat in the van and one more seat at our table. Our six-year-old acts like a middle child. The discerning started again, even though I didn't want it to. My husband and I are on the same page with all of this, although if it was up to him, we would have been together during fertile times many times. Haha, <laughs> yeah, totally get that. Um, kids are expensive. Kids are gross. Kids are loud. I have to work full-time with 25 third graders, even though I have dreamed of staying home and being a fantastic homemaker. We get up at five and go, go, go until bedtime. Why would I want to add another number in that equation? But I know how much fun it has been to raise these three beautiful blessings. We haven't done it perfectly. We've made a lot of mistakes. Our family might disown us. I'm 39. Okay. I also know that children are joyful and hilarious. My girls have helped us grow so much and we've had the privilege of watching them grow too. What do you recommend we do to help us discern this? It is swimming around and around in my head month after month. I want to know God's will and I can't see or hear it clearly. My own brain keeps getting in the way. Sincerely, Debbie. Oh gosh, Debbie, that is a doozy. And um, I think many people can relate to those feelings in both directions with regard to family size. I certainly can. Um, I can't give you specific advice, and I don't really think that's what you're looking for. You're looking for help in discerning and how you go about doing that. So you say your own brain gets in the way. I would suggest you seek out a spiritual advisor. Um, and it doesn't have to be a priest. It could be a priest if you know one that could serve in this capacity. But um, it might be a trusted friend, a veteran mom, a grandmom, a girlfriend, somebody who's been there um, that you can kind of share these thoughts with. Um, but in a more general sense, I want to tell you um, two different things. One is that nobody is ever lying on their deathbed wishing they had fewer children. At least I have never heard that. But in my life, I have heard hundreds of times people saying they wished they had another child. They wished they'd had more children. Um, people have that regret. So I'm not saying that means you are called to have another child. I mean, you know, God has a plan for your family and your fertility. And, um, but I do know that our church calls us to err on the side of generosity. And it might be that it doesn't make sense for you. You, you mentioned a lot of legitimate concerns, financial ones, health insurance ones, time ones, work ones, all of that. And I think all of that does matter. And, and it certainly is a legitimate part of that discerning process. But I would just challenge you that inside of your prayer time and inside of your conversations with your husband to challenge yourself a little bit to err on the side of generosity, because you know what? Our culture doesn't have the problem that we're having too many babies. We have the opposite problem, right? We that we're we're being a little stingy in regard to our our family size. And I'm not saying this judging anybody in particular or anything. Everybody's circumstances are different. And um ultimately though, we're, we're called to be generous inside of our family lives and that might mean bringing another soul into the world. But it might be, you know, being generous to your family would require sacrifice right now, which means sacrificing that tug that you feel. Because here's the other part of what I want to say. That tug doesn't go away. It doesn't disappear because you decide, 
our family size is what God's calling us to do right now. And if you're very reasonable about it and you completely accept that, you still are going to feel that tug sometimes. You know, I was really struggling with this, um, a, you know, a few years back when uh, my husband and I did decide that we really needed to avoid having another child right now for uh, many different reasons that I'm certainly not going to explain or defend here. But I still felt that way. I still felt like one more, one more. And I think that many of us as moms, because of all those beautiful things you listed, the joys of children and the the meaning that we get and that we find inside of our motherhood, that's all beautiful things. And we're, you know, we are called to be generous inside of that. And so that tug doesn't go away. And I remember sharing with my husband some of my conflicted feelings about that very particular thing. And he, you know, being very practical and reasonable said, well, eventually there has to be a last one. <laughs> You know, and that was actually very enlightening for me in that um, I wasn't fully recognizing that, you know, that I was feeling like, oh, we're not being generous if ever we stop having children, which, of course, is ludicrous, you know. Um, so there, there, there's that kind of conflict. So I want to tell you both those things. I want to encourage you to find an advisor, somebody who can help you, you know, shut shut your own brain off for a minute and kind of help you to um evaluate your circumstances and, and what your values are and what God might be calling you to do and to challenge yourself inside of those conversations to err on the side of generosity, but then also fully recognize the fact that God has a plan for your family, but he's working it within your circumstances. And if your circumstances mean that it doesn't make sense right now, it would be too much of a sacrifice for some members of the family or whatnot, um, or financially, it wouldn't ever make sense. I, I think it's it's important to recognize the fact that you know God has a plan for your family and it part of his plan is that you will stop having children sometime you know and that time may or may not have come so anyway i hope this is helpful and not just more confusing and conflicting for you cuz as i'm talking about this i'm i'm just really i'm really um empathizing with you i can really relate to all of those feelings on all sides of it and i think it's something that many women struggle with so i'm going to encourage listeners now to please please Pray for Debbie in her process of discernment, but also share with me some of your thoughts and your ideas and things that have helped you in discerning your family size, which is such a difficult thing. You know, um, it's such a tough thing to do in in today's world where previous generations, it really wasn't we didn't have access to information the way that we do today. What a blessing that is um, to have access to information and to be able to in some way participate in determining our family size. So um, if you have advice for Debbie that you want to share, email it to me at danielle at daniellebean.com or connect with me on Voxer. That's a great fun way that you can send me a voice message real quick and easy and I can share it quickly and easily on the podcast. There's a link to connect with me on Voxer in the show notes at daniellebean.com. Or if you're at daniellebean.com, just click that little tab on the right-hand side that says leave a voicemail. I would love to hear from you. And I think Debbie could use it too. But in the meantime, let's gather together as a community here at Girlfriends in prayerfully supporting Debbie in whatever she determines is best for her family. God bless you, Debbie. And just like that, that is all the time I have for this week. And my son, Stephen, is tapping on the window of my car because he needs a ride to cross-country practice. My day is not done, but at least I got this recording in. So congratulations to me. And thank you for being here. I really appreciate the fact that you share with me every week and all the feedback you give. But most of all, just for listening, just for connecting with me in this unique way that we can through the Girlfriends Podcast. It really means a lot to me. Your presence here is truly a gift. So thank you for that. And until next time, I hope you enjoy your day and God bless your week. Girlfriends is a DanielleBean.com production. Know your worth, find your joy.